as they head off into this ministry opportunity, but more important than that, pray for them, right? So we're going to dismiss our kids up to grade six. We do have a staff nursery, and uh, it's a parent room as well if you'd like to go down and watch the service with your little ones. We'll dismiss them now. pretty great to have a church that empties out that much with, uh, with kids going downstairs. So uh, I'll put a plug in there. If you are ever interested in a wonderful ministry opportunity, just contact our church office. We'll rip you through the uh, protection plan and get you serving with our kids. It's an exciting time down there or with our students. We love that. Well, there was a, uh, a conference, um, a gathering of um, in Britain of comparative religions. And this group of scholars and theologians, they were talking about what sets Christianity apart. Or there's some doctrines and some things about it that set it apart from others. And so they started talking about incarnation, you know, God in human form. And as they uh, thought and debated about some other religious expressions, um, there are some others that claim God in human form. So that didn't necessarily set Christianity apart, although it was unique in that aspect. What about the resurrection? Now, the resurrection of Jesus is, is the central part of our faith, and it is uh, the belief upon which the early church grew. But there are other religious expressions that claim a resurrection type of belief, although not the same, so in that, it didn't stand out either. And in walked C.S. Lewis, if you know who that is, the author of the Narnia series and a theologian, one of the greatest minds of our time. And he, he said, uh, what's, all the, what's all the rumpus about, he said. And so they went through what they were talking about, and, and they were trying to say, well, what is it that sets Christianity apart? And he said, well, well, that's easy. It's grace. And so they debated a little bit more and came to that conclusion. It was grace. Because if you look at other religions, other religious expressions, things like, um, you know, Buddhism, uh, that... Ha, has this pathway, or um, you know, karma, or you look at the Islam laws, or even the Jewish Old Testament covenant. None of them has grace. None of them have a God who would so self-sacrifice and give love and salvation, do everything necessary, no strings attached, for those he had created. Nothing else is like it anywhere else. Now last week we talked about values, and, and this week and over the next two, we're going to talk about some values that we think are important as a church family. Last week we talked about transformation, uh, we're looking at grace, then we're looking at care and family. And all of these work together, but, but transformation and grace, they work especially closely together. You see, in our church family, in, in any church, where it values, the, the church family, the people value transformation. Without grace, you get into legalism. 
because you're just about the rules and the life change and there's nothing of the, of the true depth of the gospel. But where congregations only value grace and usually a, a false kind of grace, and we're going to get into that, that's why this is entitled Grace Isn't What You Think It Is. Where a congregation only values grace without a value of transformation, it's usually kind of a, a free-for-all. Anything goes. We want to be welcoming and relevant, but we don't actually want to or value or try to get into one another's lives and see the sinful patterns and brokenness actually change. Now last week uh, I shared uh, an illustration about values, about vacuums, and if you haven't seen that sermon or heard that, go back and and watch it on YouTube or uh, go into your podcast app, you can find it there. And uh, the different values in our household, me for getting a good deal and Stephanie for a clean house, meant we bought a new vacuum and I thought we could fix it. And this week I wanted to share something else with, uh, with values. And it was interesting. Stephanie sent me uh, this, screenshot from, uh, this screenshot from TikTok. There are two types of people in the world. Those who like to clean up as they cook and those who use every pot, pan, noodle, spoon, and mixing bowl they own. And they usually marry each other. That's, that's funny. You know why that's funny? Because I was planning on talking about this dynamic in our marriage. She had no idea, and she just sent this because it's so true. So I'm the clean-as-you-cook guy. Like, why would... <laughs> why, why, can't you just, why can't you just rinse and clean and stuff like that? And she just uses whatever's needed to make a good meal. Different values. One is not right, one is not wrong. But when they clash, like, if I'm in the kitchen complaining and tidying up after her as she goes, guess how good that goes? Guess what one of the first fights in our marriage was? That! We drove each other crazy, bringing these two individual lives together in a kitchen and how we operate. And now I know enough to back away and once she's done, I'll go in there and do my thing and it works wonderfully. Different values. A, a similar attribute or similar action. One is not better than the other, but they determine a lot. So at CHC, we have these four values of transformation, grace, care, and family. They all work together. And we value grace. And here's our working definition of our value of grace. None of us are perfect or innocent, and yet God has found a way to remain in relationship with us. You can flip to that. There, there we go. None of us are perfect or innocent, and yet God has found a way to remain in relationship with us. Not holding our faults against us, we reflect this grace of God when we refuse to let our differences form a barrier in our relationship with one another. With a spirit of generosity, we approach one another with open hearts, open hands, and open minds, seeking to build respect and trust with one another. However, grace may not be what you think grace is. To discover how to extend grace to one another in a church family, we first of all have to understand what God's grace is to us as we experience it. So God's grace is not just a theory, it's not just theology, it's actually something we experience. And it's not just something we experience at the moment of faith, which is how we often talk about grace. Uh, the other way we talk about grace is just this, you know, welcome acceptance and mercy for whatever kind of goes. And none of those really fully uh, define God's grace well. But knowing about God's grace is not enough. We need to experience it. If we're to extend it to one another, we need to experience it for ourselves so we know best how to share it. 
So let's first start with what grace is not. And I find that there tend to be a bit of a spectrum. You'll see here on either side. On one side is religiosity. We have grace, like healthy God's grace in the center, and on the other, hyper-grace. Let's start with religiosity. Often this is called law or legalism. It's what Jesus spoke against in the Pharisees who had come up with rule after rule after rule to follow the Old Testament law. It was very restrictive. It was very judgmental. It meant that there was a spiritual hierarchy, and those who followed rules better than others or those who had positions of power were better than others. It's very um, separating. It, it involves a lot of coercion, a lot of um, false authority, abuse of power, and uh, it's really a dead way of life. It is the very definition of religion. The definition of religion is doing something to appease a higher power or an authority, following something to gain approval or love. And that's really what this whole idea of religiosity or law and legalism is. You're trying to do something in your own power to impress God. You're involved in a system. Uh, so it doesn't offer much victory over sin. It doesn't offer freedom. Uh, all it is is a religious system. And you can feel as if you've done well at that or not, but it doesn't really focus on a relationship with God. On the other side, we have hyper grace. And this often comes out in two different ways. In more conservative evangelical congregations, there is this sense that since we've been made new, uh, made perfect, have a new nature, that really the whole idea of addressing sin or confessing to one another, having ongoing repentance or anything like that, isn't really necessary. Uh, in, in the law camp, in the religiosity, they talk about you know, keeping short accounts with God, and you're always feeling like I'm not doing enough and God can't be pleased with me. This is the exact opposite. Like, uh, since I'm saved, uh, God will forgive me, and there's different ways to overlook sin, ignore it, not deal with it. I'm good, you're good. And there's not freedom there, but for a different reason. The second way hyper-grace sometimes comes out in a congregation is in more liberal congregations where they read into God's word and whatever the popular uh, view and culture is at the time, and we can see that throughout the centuries, different things that are popular in culture or where culture is moving and changing, often values that are contrary to God's, we read into it, and therefore in our communities and our church families, we just don't see those as coming from God's word in a certain way. We'll read into it. We'll reject things. We'll change. Still overlooking sin. Still ignoring it. Sometimes it's a bit more of a social club. Uh, and so we can see that in North America over the past hundred years. Several denominations have gone down that road. And guess what? Guess where we are as evangelicals? We're there too. We're, we're just wandering this way. And none of them really... Um, offer the depth of what it truly means to be in a relationship with Jesus, where he's dealing actively with our sin, not because we're still fallen or broken, but because we're made new and we're learning a new way. We're in transition. We're in transformation. And when we understand transformation and grace together, there's incredible life and vitality. We come alive, and our church family comes alive. These 
false ways of understanding and living out grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the greatest theologians of our, uh, our time, uh, who lived in Nazi Germany times, uh, was executed under them, and uh, was instrumental in writing about Christian discipleship. Our whole idea of modern Christian discipleship, growing to be more like Jesus, is influenced by what God was doing in his life, primarily. You can find a lot of roots there. He writes about all sorts of stuff, but one thing he talks about is the idea of cheap grace versus costly grace. Here's what he says. Cheap grace It's preaching forgiveness without repentance. It's baptism without the discipline of community. It's the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything they have. It's the costly pearl for whose price the merchant sells all he has, it's Christ's sovereignty, for the sake of which you tear out an eye if it causes you to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ, which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought after again and again, the gift which has to be asked for, the door at which one has to knock. It is costly because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It's not as if every time we sin, we're no longer a Christian, but it helps deal with what is discipleship? What is grace? How do we experience the grace of God? So what is the grace of God? I want to read you a number of things I've collected over the years, because grace is really, really important to us. It's really important to me. It's central to our belief. It sets us apart. So we need to understand what grace is, and I'm only going to scratch the surface. So if you have studied grace in the past, and it's, and it's uh, something you hold to, and, and you've read books, you're going to think, oh, man, you didn't even touch it. You're right. <laughs> we don't have time here this morning. But what I want us to do is have a deeper understanding. So here's some definitions of grace. The most common is this. God's unmerited divine favor with which he extends his gift of salvation to us. Grace is the very center and the core of the whole Bible. It's the doctrine of the grace of God that matters. Grace is what sets Christianity apart. Grace is the goodness of God poured out to humanity in our sinfulness and offering us what we don't deserve. Grace isn't just a treatment for sin. It is the cure for sin. It's what God has done in relation to us. Creation, salvation, covenant, his word, actively working in us through his Holy Spirit all come from God's grace. It's the cross, the empty tomb, and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is both God's work to save and transform us and his continuing power at work in us to help us live for him and follow Jesus. What I see in God's grace is this. I see the meeting of several major parts of his nature that often we talk about separately, but converge in such a beautiful, harmonious way. So God's grace is the meeting point of these four things at least. Uh, Love and uh, holiness. So you see love and holiness meet. Mercy and justice. Let me explain this a little bit. God's love is not a weak love. It's not a love that gets behind anything I'm behind and cheerleads us. God's love is sacrificial. God's love is deep. God's love lays down his life for us. That's God's love. He's more loving in ways we never could. His love is beyond anything we can compare. And it's that love that came to earth where Jesus 
took our place. Hung on a cross, rose again for us. That's grace. That's love. God's love. Where he exchanges new life for old life. Giving us abundant and eternal life in that new life. Here and forevermore. That's God's love. Yet at the same time, his holiness is present. Oftentimes when we talk about God's love, we're just talking about his acceptance and, and you know, God, Jesus is loving and he, he wants everyone and he was with the sinners. And that is true. But in God's grace, we also see God's holiness. If we had any comprehension for the full holiness of God, it, it would melt us. We have no idea how set apart God is, how holy other he is than us. We are holy because he is holy. He sets us apart gives us the righteousness of Christ, but his holiness is so beyond anything we can compare. And sometimes we only talk about God's love. And sometimes we only talk about God's holiness. But they merge in grace. He also has a meeting of his justice and his mercy. You see, God's justice is a backwards justice. The cost of sin, the price for sin, the penalty for sin is death. And if God were not holy he would just overlook it. Wouldn't deal with sin. He'd say, everyone come. Everyone's saved. No problem. I love you so much. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your nature. It doesn't matter the brokenness and fallenness of the world. But God in his justice, because of his holiness, can't. Something has to be done. How would you feel if someone robbed your house and you went to trial and you have compassion in your heart for the broken person who stole all you own because they have needs and the judges said it's okay you're you're hurting you're in pain go ahead no restitution no apology i'm not talking about <laughs> taking a pound of flesh off this person or, or punishing them beyond it, it feels unjust when something wrong is done it has to be made right that's the order of the world when sin is committed, something has to be made right. The price and cost for sin is death. And Jesus took that for us. Jesus doesn't just overlook sin. And he died on the cross so everyone could come to him without dealing with anything. Jesus hates sin so much. It separates us from God and separates us from each other. So much so that he took the very punishment for sin upon himself. And justice is turned on its head. Justice is still fulfilled, but he takes it on himself. And that's where God's mercy comes in. And sometimes when we define grace, all we're meaning is mercy. God's grace is not just mercy. We say that just be gracious with another person. We kind of morph that word, meaning just overlook it. It's no big deal. But in God's mercy, we get what we don't deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve Jesus' sacrifice. We don't deserve good gifts. We don't deserve a new nature. We deserve the full punishment for sin. But because God is lovely and holy and just, his mercy is at work. And it's his kindness that draws us to repentance. It's the mercy and goodness of God mixed with justice and holiness and love. It all mingles together to be grace. That's why even talking about God's grace is so difficult because it's so deep and so multifaceted. Here's a few ways I've defined grace over the past few years. The first one is God's love for us. It's God's love for us and power in us to save us and empower us to live for him. So it's, it's God's love for us, okay, and it's his power in us 
to save us, yes, initial work of salvation, but the ongoing power, empowering of the Holy Spirit to live for him. Grace isn't just what God does for us once. It's the moment-by-moment transformation. We can't live without his grace. We need his grace in our life to continue the work that he began. That's grace. Grace is also, here's another definition, grace convicts of sin and offers a way of freedom through Jesus Christ without condemnation. My favorite narrative of this is the woman caught in adultery. We're going to be looking at some portraits of grace in the series next year, looking at that. We're not going to this morning, but it grace convicts of sin and offers a way of freedom through Jesus Christ without condemnation, leaving space for a journey with Jesus in a church family that's full of mistakes. There's so much more to say about this. But that's at least an introductory understanding of the fullness of God's grace. And to understand God's grace, we need to experience it. And if you have never believed in Jesus, receive forgiveness, decide to follow him and receive new life, then all I've said is just theory. It's just theory. And I encourage you to seek Jesus and to give your life to him and experience new life, abundant life on earth with his very spirit, God's very spirit in you that leads to eternal life when we die or when Jesus returns to finish the work of resurrection power in our lives, begin at the moment of salvation. So we need to experience it to understand it. But how on earth do we share that grace with others? God is always working in us to work through us. That's just the way he, he works it. And in a church family, with the value of grace, what on earth could that possibly look like? And we've been looking at Colossians 3 as our um, base for looking at some of our values. And we're going to go back there uh, today to verse 12. But in the preceding verses, Paul's been talking about our relationship with God, primarily individually. And he talks about taking off and putting on. Not that uh, uh, at the moment of salvation, we're not completely made new. We get a brand new nature. But we have old patterns, old ways of doing things, things we're used to. And so we've got to take those things off and try on the new things. And as we try them on, it might feel a little uncomfortable. But the more we do it, the more we make choices to follow the way of Jesus, the more they become natural and they become a part of the character of Christ, which we already have. We are both made perfect and in the process of being perfected. It is the paradox of grace. And then he continues in verse 12 with the same illustration, but now he talks about this. He talks about us and how we relate to one another. Colossians 3.12, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The whole reason that we interact with one another is because we are made holy. It's not because we gather in the same seats, go in the same place. It's because we are new in Christ. And we're both made perfect. We're made holy and learning to live that way. I don't know about you, but I think if a camera followed me around, uh, I'm not sure they would find evidence every moment of every day that I live in the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. I'm flawed. I have stuff I need to make right and surrender and learn. And we're in a process of our relationships of doing the same thing. And so what Paul is saying is 
Here's the ideal. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, and if you, uh, you may have thought, this sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It is. These are lists of ways that Paul is saying, this is what it should look like when you're following Jesus well. Not with shame, not with guilt, but something to aim for, something we're in process towards. We're made perfect, we're made holy, but we're in the process of learning to live holy and live perfect. So because we're made holy, because God is holy, because he's worked his grace in us, this is what we should look like with each other. We should have tender-hearted mercy. This is compassion, sympathy, empathy for one another. Understanding, here's, here's the thing, understanding with one another when it's not deserved. That's tough. We know when somebody doesn't deserve that. And we don't want to. It comes natural in our sinful nature. But in our godly nature, in our new nature, God invites us to a new and living way where we interact with kindness with one another. This isn't a feeling. This is practical. The word he uses means acts of kindness. So be kind with one another. Be humble. This is a... a, a, a a feeling of the heart. It's where we consider others before ourselves. Just as Jesus in Philippians 2 says, he considers others better than himself and lowered himself before the angels, lowered himself below humanity, hung on a cross, even died a criminal's death. Humility. And that's lived out in gentleness. That word gentleness is an action. It's a, a tender way of behaving with one another with this tender-hearted mercy, this kindness, this humility, this gentleness, and patience. Never, never pray for patience, <laughs> unless you want a really bad day. I remember I was going through the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, uh, I was working on a pig farm, and the owner was a Christian. We used to do uh, devotions in the beginning in the morning before we'd go into the barn and do everything, and we were talking about patience, and we prayed for patience. I can fully say that was probably the worst day I ever had, or one of the worst days, most trying, and I did not have patience that day. But would it be patience with one another? What does that mean? Long-suffering, long-term. We don't give up, we don't give in, we don't give out on one another. What a different way that would be as a church family. And then he gets really specific. Verse 13. Make allowance for others' faults. That's tough. Gets worse. <laughs> And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I think that is probably the most difficult verse to apply in all the New Testament. Make allowance. Make space. Give a runway for one another to have faults. Give us room together to learn and, and, and make mistakes. Give space where we're forgiving and forgiven. Forgiveness of someone who offends us is probably the most difficult thing you will do as a follower of Jesus. It's difficult because there's a wrong that's been done. There's a debt. Someone offends you. Someone wrongs you. Someone is mean to you. Someone talks to you, uh, about you behind their back. Someone does something towards you that's hurtful. They owe you a debt. See, in Christian circles, often we say, just forgive the person overlook it. You know what we do when we do that? We stuff the emotions down and they come out in other ways at home or with others or we just leave the church altogether because a bunch of hypocrites, I'm not going around them anymore. That is not what this is saying. We're to forgive one another by being honest, speaking truth in love as Ephesians 4 says. Forgiveness is a 
one person with God process that has ripple effects to everyone. When you harbor unforgiveness in your heart, it affects the whole church family, especially those closest to you and primarily the person you're harboring unforgiveness towards because that person owes a debt to you in the same way we owe a debt to Jesus we can't pay. The penalty, the punishment for sin is death. And we will pay it on our own unless someone else does. That's justice of God. And in his love and in his mercy, he takes our place. The process for humans to follow his example, and God's not our example. We don't just like read what God does. He works it in us because this is impossible for you to do on your own. Fully. It means we recognize the fullness of the debt owed to us. We're honest about the wound and the hurt. And we take it before Jesus and we say, I'm hurt and I'm wounded and I'm offended, yet I will choose to forgive. And I will take that debt that they owe me and remove it. I won't hold it against them anymore because you don't hold what I've done to you against me. And every moment you feel feelings against that person that would cause distance, you remove that debt. And it's a process over time. And sometimes, as we're forgiving another person, we speak it. And we say, you know, you've offended me. And I want an opportunity to make things right. And that's where reconciliation comes in. When one person who's begun the forgiveness journey in their heart and taken honest things before God and removed the debt, and God is working in their heart because when we harbor unforgiveness, we're chained and in bondage and connected to the other person. And so is the other person. Their spiritual walk can't be free if we're harboring unforgiveness because they know it. And all this unresolved junk. So if you have two people in a church family, it's going to have ripple effects. Think of four, six, eight, exponentially, people not getting along. Do you get along with everyone? Nope. Do you like everyone? No, you don't. (laughs) Do you get hurt? Yeah, absolutely. This isn't saying, be nice, smile, say everything's fine, shove it under the carpet and move on. It's saying, take it to Jesus, who's already removed a greater debt from you, and he can work in you that you might forgive that person. Allow room and space for each other's faults. We can't do this through principles, practices, programs, although I I still encourage everyone, sign up for Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. This is what it's about. Teaching you to relate with others in a godly way so we don't have the junk that often happens in churches. Eight weeks of learning this. Taking off old ways, putting on new ways, because we're in a new family. Ephesians 2.8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. If receiving salvation happens through faith, if receiving grace, then that's how we live it. We live through faith. We have faith enough and trust enough in God that we say, God, if you help me forgive this person who doesn't deserve my forgiveness... I'm not talking about opening up. You may need to place boundaries and regain trust. There's all sorts of stuff with that we won't get into today. But if you are unwilling to forgive, there's something off. So how does this work? And primarily, you're probably thinking about God's grace in terms of initial salvation, but we all walk and live a daily life where we sin every day. So in order to understand how this grace works day in and day out, we have to understand how this grace works day in and day out. And day out. The question we have to ask is, what does God do with our sin? So if I'm fully saved, made me, my sin is fully dealt with, past, present, future, the moment I believe, what happens today? 
Well, it's certainly not that I lose my salvation when I sin, because I sin and you sin. We live in a sinful world. But it is that our relationship is blocked. It's this. We turn our back. We turn our back from God. It's not that he's left us in any way. He's given us full opportunity and authority and ability inside to move and work in us. But when we turn our back, the relationship's broken. It's the same between people. So there's two options for God. God can either condemn us because he set us free and done all this for us, and you know better. So he can condemn us, or he can convict us. Romans 8.1 says this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. None. God does not condemn. Ever. Who condemns? Revelation 12.10. Then I heard a, a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses them before God. When? Day and night. How often does Satan accuse you? Day and night. You messed up. You must not be a child of the king. You messed up. You can't go back to that church family. You messed up. You've got something wrong. You are broken, flawed, ruined at the core of who you are. That's what Satan says every day. And the moment we make that choice to do that here, we ruin people. So God doesn't condemn. The enemy does. What does God do? John 16, 8. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The Holy Spirit inside believers convicts of sin. God doesn't overlook sin, just wish it away. He didn't deal with it once for all, and now we can do whatever we want because God will forgive us no matter what. That's a reality and that's a truth, but that's not how it works. He convicts. God wants to do deep works of confession and repentance. Not because we're separated from God and we have to keep short accounts, but because we're close and we're near and we want to be in close relationship with him. And if we don't deal with the stuff between us, we can't be close to him either. Our relationship with one another impacts our relationship with God and vice versa. How do you tell the difference? condemnation is always hopeless. Condemnation always is heaped with guilt and shame. You're not enough, and it makes you distant from God. Conviction, in its very nature, simultaneously gives authority and victory over sin, deals with the guilt and the shame, and draws you near to God. He says, come near. I know you sinned. I know you sinned, would do this before I created you. It's okay because I took care of it. Now let's, let's walk this out together and help you learn a new way so you don't experience all this stuff I didn't plan or intend for you. That's God's mercy. That's God's love. That's God's justice. That's God's holiness at work in our life. So if God doesn't condemn and he convicts, that's how we walk it out too. When we're offended, we can bring that up with one another. There's lots of instructions in the New Testament on how to do that. We're not going to get into that today. But together... We're to make allowances for one another's faults. We leave a bit of a runway <laughs> to learn and make a mess. And we journey with one another. We don't become indifferent to one another's sin. We don't become indifferent to each other when we're hurt. We don't allow Satan to cause distance in the name of being nice. We don't allow him to cause distance because we're angry. We refuse that because we are a people of grace. So I would just simply say this. Be gracious with each other in the same way God has been gracious with you. Be gracious with each other 
in the same way God has been gracious with you. What will Country Hills look like if we continue to do this day in and day out? Will it be a place where we can struggle together? Struggle together against the sin that so easily entangles and ruins us and others. It's a place we can be free from the power of sin. We learn that together. When we learn the authority we already have in Jesus Christ over the power of sin. It's a place where everyone has a relationship deep enough that you can sit down over a coffee and say, um, <laughs> I'm wondering about this area of your life. Or deep enough to say, you hurt me. Or deep enough to say, I'm sorry. And the result is making allowance for faults and dealing with our anger and our problems and our disagreements with forgiveness, leading to reconciliation and freedom. Where we follow a pattern of grace, the same grace that God has worked in us. Why? Because none of us are perfect or innocent, and yet God has found a way to remain in relationship with us, not holding our faults against us. We reflect this grace of God when we refuse to let our differences form a barrier in our relationships with one another. With a spirit of generosity, we approach each other with open hearts, open hands, and open minds, seeking to build respect and trust with one another. Be gracious with each other in the same way God has been gracious with you. Would you stand as we close? Father God, Dad, uh, we just don't deserve your grace. We don't even fully understand your grace. We can't comprehend any of these things. The fullness of your love, how holy you are, what justice actually demands that we can't pay, and the full mercy to not hold it against us. But to what extent we experience and understand that, may we extend that to one another. Father, may we be a place where no one's desires or sins or past uh, prevent them from participating, becoming new, being made new. May we be a space and a people full of your grace. Not settling for the brokenness that results from hyper-grace or the brokenness that results from religiosity, even as well as intentioned as those two extremes are. But may we find this harmony with you and harmony with one another as we fully understand your grace, or at least more fully. May we clothe ourselves with tenderhearted mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness. May we have patience with one another. May we make allowance for one another to grow and make mistakes and do better. And as we do, may we forgive one another when we will hurt each other in the same way you've forgiven us. May we not harbor feelings of unforgiveness or bitterness, giving the enemy a foothold, creating distance and causing ripples and taking authority in other areas of our lives and community. But may we walk free and upright and close. May we be a people full of grace and truth as Jesus was. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us online. If you're in person, you're able to stack chairs. Wonderful. Join us for some cake and spend some time with the works. Lord bless you as you go. What pain is gone and mercy fills the streets to look